Hi, this is Ashley, the host of Taboo and Murder. Sorry, I have a little cold while I'm recording. So I have over a hundred episode ideas, some more well-shaped than others, but as I've said before, schadenfreude is the string that ties all things together, all subjects together. In the conception of this podcast, the name was to be Taboo, Schadenfreude, and Murder, but Schadenfreude I hope I'm saying that right because somebody corrected me. Schadenfreude is too difficult to spell and therefore too difficult to find on iTunes and other platforms. So it was dropped from the pod name, but it's certainly a lens I use when looking at these subjects. Taboo is objective. It varies from society to society. It changes with time, with understanding, and as religion and and or colonialism spread. The cross-dressing of boys is taboo in many cultures. While there are over 3,000 fafahini, and I'm sorry if I can't say that correctly, even if I wasn't sick a weekend. Um, Anyway, 3,000 men raised as girls currently living in Samoa. All this is to say that taboo is more abstract generally than murder. But when we really start to look at it, murder is actually more nuanced than you may think. We have found so many terrible ways to kill one another, and we've taken advantage of all of them since the dawn of time, it would seem. Um, In other episodes, I will cover other uh, fun taboo subjects, such as uh, cannibalism, human sacrifice, mass murder, including genocide, which I already covered at a surface level, but I intend to expand upon the subject. So, honor killings. Are they included in murder statistics? Depends on who you are, where you stand, and who has the pen writing history. All that said, what is murder? What is an assisted suicide? Is it murder if someone volunteers to be tribute? Ha. Landed that joke from like, what, like seven years ago, maybe? So I strive to be accurate in what I cover, but this is not a peer-reviewed podcast, so leave taboo and murder out of the bibliography, okay? Bibliography, that's the right word, right? I think so. So statistics vary so widely, it wouldn't help this conversation. So yay, no statistics in this episode. A common comment you've heard, usually made at the end of a conversation in TV, goes something like this prostitution was the first profession and from that i could start about 10 different conversations about the fucking patriarchy like yes the first job was oppressive to women show societal dominance by men while also showing the power and fear of the vagina that's for future episodes to be sure i bring this up because murder has been part of our history just as long sure There are some anthropologists listening in another dimension, maybe, saying that the early cases of murder were just facets of survival. And I wouldn't disagree in most of those cases, but I am not going to parcel out what the caveman's intentions were when killing another human being. Protection, guarding resources, whatever, it's the same motivation that drives people to kill today. The setting has just changed a la Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So, murder, straight up murder. It's more murky even um, when we put it through the criminal justice system, which is flawed because it's full of human beings and, you know, all kinds of other wonderful things like systemic racism and all that fun stuff. Future episodes. So, 
I'm going to focus my research today on just murder. What constitutes murder? I'm going to break down um, the different charges, the different levels of murder that a state um, can bring against someone that is accused of killing another person. We will likely have a couple typical murder scenes in our mind's eye. They're tropes at this point, like murder for hire, motive being financial or to silence someone, think movies. Or, you know, the most well-known scenario, excuse me, I needed a sip of water. Again, I have a cold. So the most uh, well-known scenario a man comes home a man comes home to find his wife or significant other in bed with another man he shoots and kills one or both of those that are in bed that's Shawshank redemption right oh my god i just remembered my first sob unexpectedly moment while on my period um happened while i was watching the green mile shout out to normalizing periods menstruation and all things vagina okay i've done my part is this first degree or second degree murder? Not having to hear about my period. So the scenario of the man walking in on his wife in bed with another man shooting and killing. Is this first degree or second degree murder? Well, it depends on a few things. Are there surviving witnesses? Did he have a weapon on his person when he walked into the bedroom? Did he have a life insurance policy out on, you know, say his wife and he was the beneficiary? Is he white? All of these things are factors to be sure. I'm not a lawyer and this is certainly not legal advice. So I'm now going to pull actual legal definitions. Oh, and a note, I'm sticking with just federal murders because state to state shit varies so much and I'm not touching the military system. There's a great podcast called, uh, uh, what is it? I can hear his voice, Military Justice that is fantastic. Um, it covers the Bo Bergdahl case. Check it out. Um, so when I say the state, I mean um, the government or like the prosecution. Oh, and of course, if I've somehow penetrated your ears before Sarah Koenig in season two of Serial, stop right now and listen to that and about 500 other podcasts that are more worthy. I self-deprecate too much. Anyhow, um, Serial Season 2, Bo Bergdahl, and then if you want to hear all about the criminal justice system, uh, piggyback that with military justice. It's been a while since I've listened to them, but um, very involved. Um, so listen to the, um, I would say Serial, then military justice in that order, because I think that he goes episode by episode and breaks it down. So anyhow, now I'm going to quote, uh, states have adopted several different schemes for classifying murders by degree, states again being the, in the federal system. The most common separates murder into two categories, uh, first and second degree murder, and treats voluntary and involuntary manslaughter as separate crimes that do not constitute murder. Manslaughter, murder, the difference. So first degree murder any intentional murder that is willful and premeditated with malice and a forethought. 
So felony murder, a charge that may be filed against a defendant who is involved in a dangerous crime where a death results from the crime is typically first degree. So most people think like the intent is to go and kill that person. But like technically you can get charged with, and I'm not a lawyer, but like you can get charged with first degree murder if you and like your buddy go and plan to like rob somebody and then your buddy gets shot by the other person because you were involved in a felony criminal act you can get charged with first degree murder i think probably wrong somebody will more than happily let me know if i'm wrong but i'm pretty sure that um a good um, prosecutor can make that argument if the defense wasn't um you know well qualified speculation 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 so of course you've heard me talk about aaron hernandez not the first time and likely will not be the last time i reference him He sits in the intersection of just so many topics that I want to discuss um, and I think need to be discussed and just that I find interesting. It's my podcast. So yay. So in uh, the case of Aaron Hernandez, he was convicted of first degree murder. Um, He planned and he intended to kill. It took the jury six days to find him guilty. Listen to Gladiator or read the series in the Boston Globe. It's fascinating. And so schadenfreude. Second degree murder. Any intentional murder with malice aforethought, but is not premeditated or planned in advance. So that scenario of the man walking in and killing somebody that's in bed with his lover. So in that instance, it would be second degree murder if he intended to pull out a weapon and shoot them with the intent to like kill them but it would be first degree murder not a lawyer if he walked in saw them in bed walked out into a different room grabbed the gun came back that's now intent and then that's motive because it's not the impulse it's not the act of passion i believe is how most of the time it is described um Again, not a lawyer, but that is my understanding of the major difference between first and second degree murder in that particular trope. So um, the most recent well-known case is Jason Van Dyke uh, out of Chicago. He was uh, found guilty of second degree murder for the 2014 shooting of Laquan McDonald. Uh, The verdict actually marks uh, the first time in almost 50 years that a Chicago police officer has been convicted of murder for an on-duty shooting. Watch the video if you haven't of his sentencing. I think it's it. it, it everybody should watch it. Um, I had to include this example, even though I will be covering police escalation brutality um, in a separate episode. Um, but he, Jason Van Dyke, was convicted of 16 counts of battery for the amount of bullets which he fired into Laquan. The jury read out each guilty verdict, all 16. It was really powerful to watch. I I highly recommend that you look that up. It's Jason Van Dyke. So then uh, voluntary manslaughter, sometimes called a crime of passion murder, is any intentional killing that involves no prior intent to kill and which was committed under such circumstances that would cause a reasonable person to become emotionally or mentally disturbed, a la walking, you know, in on somebody in bed. 
Both this and secondary murder are committed on the spot under a spur-of-the-moment choice, but the two differ in the magnitude of the circumstances surrounding the crime. For example, a bar fight that results in death would ordinarily constitute second-degree murder. If that same bar fight stemmed from a discovery of infidelity, however, it may be mitigated to voluntary manslaughter. Just letting toxic masculinity breed. So the example that I pulled, because I'm from Minnesota, it's relatively local. Um, a Pleasant Hill man has pleaded guilty to a 2017 killing outside of an apartment complex. Ricky St. John, 27, was charged in November 2017 after an early morning altercation at 610 North Pleasant Hill Boulevard. Police said the fight began as a domestic dispute between St. John and 46-year-old Timothy Neal, the grandfather to St. John's kids. Ricky put Timothy in a headlock with his arm around Timothy Neal's neck, took him to the ground and applied pressure until Timothy Neal quit struggling. A criminal complaint in the case reads, Neal was injured in the fight and was transported to Iowa Lutheran Hospital, where he later died. St. John was originally charged with murder in the first degree, but pleaded guilty last week to voluntary manslaughter. Court documents state St. John caused the death of Neal under circumstances which would otherwise be murder, but instead was a sudden, violent, and irresistible action that was provoked. Hmm. St. John was sentenced to 10 years in prison and ordered to pay $150,000 in restitution. St. John was scheduled to go to trial in September of, oh, September 24th, rather. So the woman in bed with a man scenario that I outlined could be secondary murder or voluntary manslaughter, depending upon several variables, as we've looked at briefly. Now, involuntary manslaughter would be a killing that stems from a lack of intention to cause death, but involving an intentional or negligent act leading to death. A drunk driving related death is typically involuntary manslaughter. See also vehicular homicide causing death by dangerous driving, gross negligence, manslaughter, and causing death by criminal negligence for in intern. Oh, that has to be wrong because it says interconversational equivalence. That's not right. Note that the um an element blah 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 involuntary manslaughter is essentially it's that it has to be you know unintentional uh, like an example would be like you get in uh the bar fight and you're like you know puffing your chest but you don't mean to actually kill the person um or those like stupid fucking pranks from a few years ago um like the like walking around and like punching someone in the head i remember reading i think somebody did that game and I'm air quotes because it's not a game that's violence um and assault but uh punched somebody in the head they fell and like hit their head on like a curb or something and like an older gentleman he died and left like eight or nine kids behind or something you know so like I believe that is again not a lawyer involuntary manslaughter because they were doing something that was negligent it was an act that led to the death but the actual punch wasn't in the intent wasn't there to kill the man he um the the pieces then fell into place to cause his death involuntary manslaughter yeah i think i just talked that through that's about right so 
I pulled this because it also has relevance um, as an example. So last week in Tucson, U.S. District Judge Rainier Collins announced to a silent courtroom that Border Patrol agent Lonnie Schwartz had been found not guilty of involuntary manslaughter for the killing of Jose Antonio Elena Rodriguez. In October of 2012, Schwartz shot 16 rounds through the border fence from Nogoles, Arizona into Nogoles, Sonora, sorry about that, Mexico. I did speak Spanish uh, in high school for one year, so I should be nailing this. Anyway, 10 bullets were found in 16-year-old Elena Rodriguez's back and head. Schwartz's defense argued that Elena Rodriguez was throwing rocks and that Agent Schwartz feared for his life. So relevant with what Trump was just saying about rocks and rifles and fucking terrifying. Border agent uh, was acquitted of involuntary manslaughter in Mexican teen's death. After the verdict was announced, a gray-haired man stood. This is a miscarriage of justice, shouted Richard Boren, head of an advocacy group named Victims of Border Patrol Network. And then... Excuse me, Tom Sheck should have testified, referring to former Customs and Border Control Internal Affairs officers. James Tom Sheck reported to multiple sources that he saw a clear video in which Jose, Jose Elena Rodriguez was not throwing rocks, as the defense alleged. You should look this up because it's a lot more involved than what this is um, quoting. I'm sure you've actually probably heard about it, but um, it's, I think it's going to just simply be precedent setting and that's terrifying. We're getting, we're inching closer to Gilead with every one of these fucking things. So court marshals ushered Bourne out of the courtroom um, because of his outburst. I'm throwing an outburst. Uh, past Elena Rodriguez, this is uh, mother uh, who was waiting outside. She didn't want to go into the courtroom just in case this not guilty verdict was reached. The victim's grandmother, though, Taid Elena, sat in the first row, stoic, until the last jury member left the room. When the judge, too, had left, supporters surrounded her and the tears began to stream down her face. Miss Elena had been fighting for justice for her grandson's killing for six years. He was like a son to her, she testified. Taya and Elena lived mostly on the U.S. side of Nogoles cleaning houses to support Elena Rodriguez and his family back in Mexico. The morning after he was killed, she called the man whose home she'd cleaned for some 20 years, former Nogales, Arizona District Judge Roberto Montiel. Montiel? With that call began what has been an unrelenting legal battle. Two and a half years of Swartz, two and a half years for Swartz to get indicted. Another two to go to trial for second degree murder. He was acquitted for that charge in April. This last trial for manslaughter has been yet another month in court reliving every detail of her grandson's gruesome death. Montiel has been supporting her and the family all of the time. Of course I am. Tide was my mother when she died. She's always been part of the family, he said. Border Patrol agents rarely face a jury. Though the verdict was disheartening to the family of the victim, the fact that there has been a case at all was extraordinary, which is sad. The Guardian has documented 97 fatal encounters over the past 15 years, yet this trial is only the third time that a Border Patrol agent has faced a jury for a killing committed while on duty.
a murder, I shall say. The first was Agent Michael Elmer, who was charged with second-degree murder and obstructing justice. He was acquitted in 1992. Acquitted. The second was Agent Nicholas Colbert, who witnesses say shot Francisco Javier Dominguez Rivera execution-style in the desert. He claimed, as did Agent Lonnie Swartz, that the victim was throwing rocks. Two trials ended in hung juries and prosecutors dropped the case. We're dehumanizing people. Throwing rocks? I'm sorry. Some white kids are throwing rocks and that's the reaction that you have? No. It's disgusting. <sighs> the Elena Rodriguez case has haunted James Tomshik since he left CPD in 2014. He says it is one of the most clear-cut and egregious excessive use of force cases he witnessed at the agency. That was until this last week, dude. It gets worse. When he was at CP, uh, CBP, he filed whistle, whistleblower complaints about the agency and eventually resigned. This tragic incident is an example of an irresponsible use of lethal force. Had it occurred in any American city, it simply would never have been tolerated. Fucking preach. Well, he says, I said fucking preach. Tomchek believes that the Swartz, I can't say it while I'm sick, Swartz trial points to a larger pattern of abuse within agency. Yep. A report by the American Immigration Council found that over 95% of alleged misconduct complaints filed internally at CBP between January 2012 and October 2015 resulted in no action taken. In 2014, the CBP itself released a critical report of misuse of deadly force specifically in the case of rock throwers and moving vehicles. After initially refusing to make the report public, the agency eventually did, along with updating their handbook to state, excessive force is strictly prohibited. That's good. It's like a restraining order. Paper. But when is use of force excessive? In Swartz's case, the prosecutors asserted that was for this jury to decide. Through their not guilty verdict, they have made clear that the killing of Jose Antonio Alina Rodriguez was not an excessive use of force in their view. Arturo del Cueto, vice president of the National Border Patrol Union, agrees. We've always held our agents accountable when they did something wrong, he says. In a case like this, we've always backed up our agents when we believe they did the right thing. James Tomchek is upset but not surprised to learn of the verdict. Most CBP officers and Border Patrol agents are high-integrity law enforcement professionals, he says, who will not let this verdict influence how they conduct operations in the field. He warns that some Border Patrol agents and CBP officers, however, will unfortunately see this verdict as giving them a wider range to engage in activities with excessive use of force, an unfortunate consequence for people living in border communities like our entire southern border. The Day of the Dead. That is an unsettling consequence for Taye and Elena, who wants nothing more than justice for the death of her grandson. The day after um, Day of the Dead, earlier this month, Miss Elena tidied up her grandson's grave. This is the comfort uh, the living remain with, she said in Spanish, to bring their deceased one's flowers and candles. 
She was a day late to the remembrance because of the trial. She never missed a day in court during this trial or the first, which she often came to alone or was driven by a friend and a client. Elena Rodriguez's mother only um, was granted permission to come to the U.S. for the retrial. That was the first time she'd set foot on U.S. soil. While the criminal case for Jose Antonio appears to have ended, the family still have a civil case pending before the Supreme Court. The American Civil Liberties Union is supporting them in what could be the first time an agent held liable for monetary damages for a killing outside of U.S. territory. We'll see. While Ty and Elena's great-grandchildren played around her, she stared off into the distance toward the jagged border fence below. Pues la espresa muere el muroto verdad, she said. Hope is the last thing to die. And I'm sure I totally botched the beautiful Spanish. One thing that I wanted to include is just the federal mandatory sentencing for each of the categories. So going in... Um, ascending order of degree. So involuntary manslaughter, a fine or up to eight years imprisonment, voluntary manslaughter, fine or up to 15 years imprisonment, second degree murder, term of years to life imprisonment, first degree murder, imprisonment for life to the death sentence. Those are the ranges. So look, I think mandatory minimums shouldn't be applied to nonviolent offenses like drugs. Like, let me be clear, nonviolent. All rape and sexual assaults are violent and should be punished as such. We're catching up, but we're not there. Anyway, there are lesser degrees, um, diminished capacity, and all other kinds of minutiae that can make sentencing murky, but that's kind of the, the four different breakdowns without all of the caveats. Other issues that are less obvious but are omnipresent, our system is not designed, uh, and this, of course, again, I'm going to say for the last fucking time, I am not a lawyer. This is simply my opinion right here, uh, or my take on it, rather. Our system is not designed for people to go to trial. It simply is too small to handle the volume it has to handle. So either we need to change something, in my opinion, like maybe some crimes aren't crimes anymore or whatever, but the system that we currently have is used in a way to get people to take a plea bargain or plea out, as they say, as the kids say, as the TV says. So charging and sentencing are very disproportionate to the actual crime oftentimes. Prosecutors, knowing they'll need to seek a plea, Pile on charges so something sticks when it gets pled down. Serial Season 3 does a fantastic job showing how stacking charges fuels this plea system. Anyway, the vast majority of cases don't make it to trial, and they couldn't make it to trial because our entire system would just simply collapse. There's there are not there are no public defenders, there aren't enough courtrooms, there are not enough judges, there are not enough jurors. There's just not enough for the amount of people we're incarcerating and that we're putting through the system. I make this point for two reasons. Our system is so broken that those participating in the system have to use the system in a way that is inherently oppressive to those of limited means. And systematic or systemic racism um, 
and systemic, uh, I won't even touch on that part, but, you know, systemic racism, um, that's an episode of its own or a series of its own. Um, they're factored into the system in an intangible way that simply can't be ignored. But, um, for the purposes of this podcast, I'm not going to delve into them. I just want it to be known. I recognize they exist. So plea deals being the norm breeds to an overload in charges. So leaning to the next point, because of this, there's often motivation to take the plea deal, even if you're innocent. So again, see season three um, of Serial for some great examples. Um, But because there's motivation to plea out, we don't know how many actually innocent people take the deal because they're so oppressed. It's literally their best option. Like, how terrifying is that? Look up Khalif Browder. That's cash bail. That's another issue. Um, but Serial Season 3 has a couple, I don't want to do any spoilers, but a couple of great um, stories that highlight this really, really well. But how terrifying is that, honestly, that you could be forced that your best option is to plead guilty to something you didn't do because the thought of going to trial, the, the actual financial cost and what your sentence could be could be so astronomically like uh, out of whack you just you can't do it so you accept a lesser conviction you're labeled a felon you you deal with all those consequences because it's the lesser of two evils like that's just fucking terrible would you be surprised to know that statistics in this regard are nearly impossible to find me either The one area that actually has a decent amount of data um, is surrounding death row inmates, actually. Um, So to to specify, um, because of my tangents, I mean, like, innocence. Like, there's there are really uh, very little um, in the way of reports regarding the amount of people imprisoned or, you know, exonerated um, that, that are actually innocent there are some rough figures out there that maybe like two percent but there isn't anything like hard and and fast anyway that I could see um the one area where that is not true though is actually um data surrounding death row inmates and really no surprise there when you think about it because it's such divisive political issue of course there is going to be funding for such studies it's ammo right Anyway, when it comes to hard data, the most abundant and consistent research I found is in the death penalty cases. Um, A study published in uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences uh, determined that at least 4% of uh, people on death row were and are likely innocent. 4%. I thought it was two that I had read elsewhere. Maybe that's like gen, gen pop. Uh, 4%. That's fucking crazy. So there are roughly 4,000 people on death row. So that means that 160 people on death row are innocent. That is crazy. So in my opinion, Curtis Flowers is one of those 160 people. Please check out season two of In the Dark for his story. I'm super hopeful that it's act- his case is going to be seen um, by the Supreme Court, actually. So there should be some movement on it in June. Um, check out season two of In the Dark. I don't want to give anything away, but it's haunting and beautifully done and uh, exemplary work and also exemplary of like everything that's wrong with the criminal justice system, particularly if you are not 
white and somebody of exceptional financial means. So back to my notes here. Wrongful execution. Um, so, you know, wrongfully putting somebody to death. Wrongful execution is a miscarriage of justice occurring when an innocent person is put to death by capital punishment. Yep. Cases of wrongful execution are cited as an argument by opponents of capital punishment. Yep. Political. While proponents suggest that the argument of innocence concerns the credibility of the justice system as a whole and does not solely undermine the use of the death penalty. Yeah. So it's all fucked. So we should just kill some people because it's all fucked. It's like a it's like a Swiss cheese argument. I just came up with that. I'm sure somebody else has, but I find that hilarious. <sighs> have I mentioned I have, a, I have a cold right now? Okay. A number of people um, are claimed to have been innocent victims of the death penalty. Newly available DNA evidence has allowed the exoneration and release of more than 20 death row inmates since 1992 in the United States, but DNA evidence is available in only a fraction of capital cases. Others have been released on the basis of weak cases against them, sometimes involving prosecutorial misconduct, hello in the dark, resulting in acquittal at retrial, hello in the dark, charges dropped, should be in the dark, or innocence-based pardons, hello serial season one. The Death Penalty Information Center has published a list of 10 inmates executed, but possibly innocent. At least 39 executions are claimed to have been carried out in the U.S. in the face of evidence of innocence or serious doubt about guilt. That's great. Good for us. Since 1976, the United States has executed over 1,400 offenders. None of them have since been granted a posthumous. I can never say that. I want to say posthumous. That's not right. Posthumous exoneration. So I covered public executions. I plan to cover the death penalty in an episode two, focusing on a global scale. I'm finding that as I research subjects and put episode outlines together, I'm feeling compelled to lay out so much background. And while I love Dan Carlin's hardcore history, I don't have the 20 hours required to give sufficient context. So many of my episodes will share a similar theme and relate to other episodes, but if I'm executing this shit correctly, each episode should serve as a standalone nugget of info and hopefully entertainment. Even if it's just schadenfreude, I'll take it. I hope you've enjoyed this true crime companion piece. Maybe it will make the sentencing feel a little less fucked up as you binge other podcasts. Probably not. Remember, every time you get in a car, you're responsible for not killing people with it. Ver vehicular manslaughter doesn't require intent. Should that be my sign off? Anyway, thank you for listening to this stepping stone episode of Taboo and Murder. Please let me know what genre of murder you'd like me to cover next. With Cindy Hyde-Smith in the news, lynching feels too close, if that makes sense. So unless the fucking Nazis start talking shit about human sacrifice, maybe that would be a little palate cleanser, you know, a little distance. Please get in touch on Twitter at SMTaboo. And of course, I'd greatly appreciate if you would subscribe, rate, leave a review, and share with all of your friends. Thanks for listening.